no moms for miles. It's best to think of the rules as opportunities. No coffee, no energy drinks, no unprescribed speed, no sharing prescribed speed, no unprescribed cola, no bowls, bongs, spliffs, one-hitters, some-hitters, kooks, lewds, spanks, syringes, or nards. No paraphernalia, except in skits. No peanut butter within 30 feet of the following campers. Piper, Caden, Braden, Persephone, Big John, Little Jack, Tall Eddie, and all three Britneys. No flasks. No flask pockets. No trench coats. No unregistered firearms. No colors that have been gang colors. No gangs. No unprovoked limping. No weakness. No allergies. No glasses. No thinking of pulling the prank of the century and then not doing it. No heat strokes during afternoon wreck hour. No exemptions from afternoon wreck hour. No boys and girls cabins. Leave room for the spirit on the slow dance. Dance with everybody, especially the kitchen staff, especially poor, poor putty. In the event of confusing arousal, play some basketball. And if that doesn't help, Nurse Nadine's muscle relaxants taste like Jolly Ranchers. If someone mocks you, Laugh with them. During small groups, open up. During one-on-ones, be real. During quiet times, emote. No not singing. No unfun thoughts. No holding back. Half a forest got burnt down for you to live it up. Coming to you from Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, home of LARB HQ, this is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Gabe Durham, who is the author of Fun Camp. You've just heard the very first piece from it as a polyphonic novel, I would say, about summer camp. He's also the publisher, editor, editor, not publisher, right, of Boss Fight, editor and publisher of Boss Fight Books, a book series where each book is devoted to one video game. If you listen to Ken Bauman on the show, we talked about his book, on Earthbound, which is part of that series. It is a sweltering day in Los Angeles, the perfect time to talk about summer camp, something that I never actually experienced. I assume it's very hot. I mean, there's all these ideas about what summer camp is that kids go to in America. Do kids still go to summer camp as we popularly conceive of it? Is it still a thing? Is, is this is is the summer camp of fun camp a, a going concern for the sort of 12, 13, 14-year-olds today? Yeah, I think so. It's still going pretty strong. I think it might have specialized in some ways. And, you know, you you probably had uh, back in the 50s a more uh, one-size-fits-all summer camp model for boys where it was basically kind of this nature survivalist uh, tinge thing where – Knots. Yeah, lots of knots, lots of um, sometimes sleeping in teepees. Uh, There's a piece in the book where I I start talking about it a little bit where um, they would actually – bring in a real Native American to kind of lend their naturist authenticity to the whole affair and, you know, teach them things like archery and honor. Mm -hmm. And then, but then eventually uh, what they decided was that maybe it would be a little bit more comfortable for everybody if you just got a white guy and you dressed him up like a Native American. And so that's what they did. And then eventually you know, even though a lot of the traditions that came out of summer camp, um, we still use today, like the, you know, the campfire is kind of that, just the, the, the council ring at night is, is basically what that's based on, but we'd still do it cause it's so fun. And well, you know, why wouldn't you, mm-hmm. but now, you know, we have so many camps and, and day camps and sports camps and, mm-hmm. uh, camps on college campuses and, uh, 
right? There's, yeah. there's no, there's no just camp. Like if a kid says, I want to go to summer camp, there's no just that, right? You mentioned, uh, I think in another interview that you got sent to a, a Christian summer camp or two, right? That's right. Yeah. That's the main experience that I had as both a uh, camper uh, as a kid and then a counselor and a camper in yeah. high school. And so um, kind of saw both sides of that coin. This is something I've always wondered about. Are, are counselors, by definition, former campers at the camp? Like, what's the system there? Do you graduate into a counselor or is that just a job? I think it could be either. But from my perspective, it was definitely kind of the graduate into it model where, you know, you were going to these camps uh, as a kid and you thought the counselors were so cool. So by the time you are of age to have the privilege and at this at this camp where I was a counselor, I think I even paid a little bit of money to do it. So it was kind of the opposite of a job, but it was, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Reverse job. I know reverse job, but uh, it still felt like an honor because you got to see yourself as a cool counselor through the camper's eyes and, you know, try to kind of model yourself as an adult authority figure in a way that you don't have a lot of opportunities to do as a 16 year old. Not bad for a college application. Is that one of those things where it's like, well, this will look good when I apply, when that time comes. Yeah. Pop it on there. Why not? Responsibility. That's right. (laughs) So in a Christian summer camp and there's, there's, Seems there seems to be a Christian angle to the camp of fun camp as well. I mean, what's how heavily has God worked into it in your experience, or how directly? Hmm. Well, in the book, I sort of tried to hedge my bets in a couple of different ways. So, on one hand, that was like the experience that I had, right? So I had to use it. So there's a chaplain in there, but it's uh, at fun camp. Um, there is also sort of their 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 biggest focus and their religion, I would say is trying to mold these campers into being the most fun kids that they possibly can. They fashion themselves as a kind of anti-school where they prioritize wildness and pranks and, you know, food fights and and all these kind of things. And so it's this very, even though, you know, they, they believe they're, they're creating the most awesome time possible and they, maybe they sort of are, but it's also a very narrowly defined, uh, definition of that. And I think that does extend to most camps, even probably a lot of the ones beyond my immediate experiences that, you know, there's, there's a lot of rules for how you behave in your life as a kid. And then you go to this other place and suddenly you're expected to, you know, turn it on in a way that you've just never had license, but also maybe you didn't really want to do in the rest of your life. This reminds me of a quote. Well, the whole book reminds me of a quote that gets at what I think is a central concept of this book, Fun Camp. I'm going to look it up because yeah. it's a quote by Samuel Johnson, and I've been thinking of how I remember it. But as with a lot of Dr. Johnson quotes, uh, you never really get them right. You should give us both, and we'll see which one's better. Yes. Uh, what my quote is, is, well, what I think he said was, nothing is more doomed than a plan for merriment, which mm-hmm. sounds like that could be the what do you epigraph of uh, of fun camp maybe That's great. Ne- next next edition but i'm searching samuel johnson doomed merriment was this not a samuel johnson quote that's the other thing about samuel johnson quotes by the way is that sometimes it's not him so i'm going to look up plan for merriment next but while i do that i mean the core concept is sound isn't it that's the a plan to have fun is not going to work, right? Right. I think, I mean, it makes you, it makes you as a kid contend with 
some things that you don't always have an opportunity to contend with, like just how much are you going to give yourself uh, over to a particular group once you become a part of it? You know, are you going to maintain your very American individualism and kind of hold back and, you know, say, I don't know, I don't think I want to do any skits if that's okay. And so, you know, kind of holding back or, or are you just going to give yourself over whole hog and um, try to have the best, you know, even if it's prescripted for you, have the best time you possibly can. So, you know, and that's what, um, uh, you know, I've got this character in the book named Billy who's writing all these letters home to mom. And a useful thing for that is to just kind of watch him start as one of the resistors and slowly you're seeing him kind of buy into what they're selling. I have your epigraph for the second edition. Nothing is more hopeless than a scheme of merriment. Hmm. Better than what I'd remembered. Um, But the the, the hopeless scheme, you can use fake Samuel Johnson or a real one. So where did you fall on the spectrum? How much you would give yourself over to the group? I mean, you became a counselor, so there's a certain onboardness there, I assume. But were you always joining? Were you most of the time joining? Yeah, I think I was most of the time joining was probably it. I mean, it was. I was a kind of introverted kid, so it was definitely a matter of trying to stretch myself and being a little bit shell-shocked at just being around people nonstop the way uh, some of those kids can be, but also kind of loving it mm-hmm. and feeling that uh, I'm doing better at it than maybe I thought I could. Uh, and especially, you know, what really helped me, though, is when I started just kind of giving myself over to projects within the span of camp. And so something at, larger than yourself huh? <laughs> at a certain point, um, by the end of it in high school, I was I had a group of five friends uh, myself would just we take all the free time. Anytime we could get away, we would just work on skits. And then at night, during skit time, we would just kind of like fashion ourselves into a troop and have a lot of fun. So that became that, that became kind of the primary goal uh, of, of my time. Mm-hmm. There, there is some life metaphor there that you do have to find a project that, that keeps well, – you've got to find an object of focus, right? Yeah, that's Ooh. right. And I mean another thing that I sort of touch on in the book is that – um, so there's these very, uh, either spiritual or personal epiphanies that you can have at camp. And often those are going to come in about year one or year two. So, uh, like there's a piece in there called we peaked at 14 where a girl is just lament. She's still at camp, but she's lamenting the fact that she hasn't felt these powerful emotions at camp. Uh, you know, in the last few years, um, nearly as much as she did chasing three the first ago. high. She's chasing the first high, but it's just never going to be as sweet. Oh. And so, you know, she's a girl who could really use a project. And instead, she's just, you know, kind of trying to, to find her way back to. It's something people have brought up in reviews, like summer camp as a microcosm for life itself, for existence, the human condition. I mean, was that a realization about camp you had at camp or while writing this book? If indeed that's a realization you share with these reviewers. I think I share it with them, but I don't think I had that kind of perspective while I was at camp. It was definitely more uh, exploring the possibilities of writing in the book. But I think uh, one thing that I had a lot of fun with was taking things that in your life would normally happen very, very uh, slowly or, or just happen more gradually and suddenly kind of 
packing them into a single week at camp. Right. I mean, um, was your camp a week? It was just a week. Just a week. Yeah. I picture, you know, we're, I think we're about the same age. So you would have seen the show Salute Your Shorts on uh, Nickelodeon right. occasionally. You know, That was all summer, right? Yeah. It seems like, well, the, the camp was all summer, but the show was like every day. I mean, <laughs> it seemed like summer camp, this was a world in which summer camp was perpetual. Um a week seems very short by comparison. Yeah, just endless <laughs> summer wilderness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they didn't. The campers on that show didn't ever. They, they were never just arriving, except on the very first episode. It was just that was a realm where it was always summer camp, and that's kind of having not gone to summer camp myself. That was kind of how I envisioned it, like this sort of interminable. Uh, you really not a, not a microcosm of life, but actually a lifetime. I mean, just a week at camp, prepare the, the sort of. Housekeeping eats up the top and bottom end of it, right? Yeah, I mean, what, how much right. camp do you get? Yeah, and that, that's why you know the the, the last day of uh, mm. of camp in the book is just you know Sunday morning, and everybody's leaving, and it's it's this very mournful ending uh, of the book because uh, I just couldn't stop writing pieces of of these kids right. who are just having such a hard time with. Uh, letting go and already kind of seeing themselves needing to rejoin their parents mm-hmm. and school and people who think they know them. They've had these realizations about themselves at camp and then right. coming back is very <laughs> difficult. Was there for you no overlap between your groups at camp and your groups in the rest of life? Like was, were the, was the Venn diagram completely separate? Like the people you saw at camp every year were the same and there was no overlap with just your your normal and well i'm making this sound more complicated than than it is but was camp its own world socially uh it mostly was yeah i mean so uh there were kind of a couple just different spheres that i was moving in in those days which was so one of them was the kind of camp the church camp Mm -hmm. slash occasional church weekend retreat Mm -hmm. scene that i would kind of meet up with other just people who i was getting to know in southern california and um would kind of do that do that thing with them and then uh, and then just school and school friends. And there was church all, and there was school, almost church and state yeah, separation of church <laughs> and school. And there is really very little overlap. Mm. Did that give a sense of like what happens in, in summer camp stays there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, trying to create a different, uh, you know, avatar for yourself or right. just, you know, just remake yourself for the week, uh, would be so tempting for people. And I would, you know, occasionally run into people and just have conversations with them and realize, that even though I wasn't at, at camp with them, mm-hmm. that their time in camp had been especially important mm-hmm. because they'd figured it out, you know, and they'd sort of been like, I, I was queen at camp. And it was sort of important that they let you know that because they weren't queen of school. Right. It was a very different space for them. I was queen of something, by God. <laughs> Everybody's got to be queen lament. of something. Yeah. <laughs> a, there was a time. It's uh, this whole what happens at camp stays at camp phenomenon. I mean... You mentioned going to Christian camps, and we've mentioned the sort of factionalization of camp. And I, I've heard friends, especially who went to Jewish summer wow. camps, uh, with, uh, evidently nothing but sex goes on at those. I mean, that's these are the stories that are told. It I sounds, take it Christian camp was not quite so uh, yeah. quite so uh, much of a hotbed, as it were. It sounds so hot to go to <laughs> Jewish camp, and I just you know, oh I, I yeah. Why 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 is that the camp where that's where everybody's getting action? I think that they have a lot more comfort and a lot less shame with mm-hmm. their sexuality. And that they're also... Your camps um, are more shame-oriented. Very much more shame-oriented, yeah. And, 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 and just to, you know, speak, uh, sp- yeah, speak for the Jews, um, I, I think also, you know, they've got a lot of uh, 
parents and and family members and uh, people in their lives who are just really happy to see some good Jewish kids uh, get together and so. you know you know you know your mom's going to approve of whomever you choose I that's guess right. so she might not want you to be making love quite as young but sure. at least <laughs> <laughs> yeah you take what approval you can get yeah the the sense of having missed out on something by not having gone to summer camp should a kid's former kids like myself who didn't go to summer camp feel that way have we missed out on something it depends if you've kind of had those outlets where you were away from your parents for an extended period of time and had some that's what it comes down to is being away from parents to me that's that's the big thing and sort of uh opening yourself up to the influence of people outside of your immediate circle and and what's so crazy is that depending on what the camp is what the what your new parents for the week or for the month could be emphasizing is radically different than what your actual parents emphasize. And so, and you're still a kid, you're still very suggestible, um, some kids more than others, but you are kind of just open to whatever it is that they're throwing at you. And so, you know, you have to contend with that. And I would say that even though some of the things uh, that I had to contend with at some of those, um, you know, sometimes it can't, but especially at some of those retreats and just uh, Christian stuff would be very, uh, dogmatic in a way that seems scary to me now. And yeah, in, in a way that I, that I just uh, really don't agree with, I can kind of see how it's useful for me to have been uh, there for it and to have had to contend with it then. And even maybe agree with some things then, and then eventually kind of have to learn. Um, adults aren't in consensus about yes, this. Shockingly, shockingly. <laughs> but you got, you got some inoculation, perhaps we could say against true dogma. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I was doing this interview uh, about the book with Matthew Simmons, and he was just kind of asking me about uh, when when did I get the sense that uh, adults were full of shit? Mm. And I think that's that's a great question. <laughs> and maybe the faster that you learned it. They, uh... <laughs> the, you might say the, the cracks start appearing in the grand facade of adulthood. Yes. Mm. And did, for you, was that traumatic or exciting or what i think both yeah i think it was it was kind of i mean i think as you're forging your own identity it's important to realize that you ultimately don't have a lot of help Uh, in this i mean if you do uh you're you might be doing it wrong Mm. and so you kind of need to strike out on your own and figure out a lot of things for yourself and and you could put that off indefinitely Mm. and just stick very close to the things uh that you're told by the people Mm. most uh immediately around you but Mm. eventually it's gonna that's gonna come back and bite you within the span of a week did you personally write home letters to your parents we you have a kid who's fairly fairly prolific about letter writing considering it's a week he's away yeah billy's on a two letters a day plan <laughs> um i i think i did write home some because my mom made it very easy for me too she uh she gave me some some envelopes mm-hmm. and some paper specifically so that i could write her a couple letters and um so i think letters I, it's about writing letters from camp quote unquote it's, it's not even there's the function has gone away a little bit from letters from camp, right? If it's only a week and we live in the age of the internet, which yeah. was around, I'm, I'm sure in the days you were in camp, it, there wasn't like, it would, no, people didn't bust out their iPhones. That's true. It's people, and there probably wasn't an easy way to access your email, but there's this, a line in there about, you know, how we, we sort of forge our bonds with purposefully uh, Luddite means like writing letters and that, 
that's hard to deal with as we re-enter the world of technology. Yeah, and so that was something that I, I did sort of inject into the book a little bit because the main thing that I remember is it being hard for me that I wasn't watching any TV. Mm. Um, but I would imagine now that it's the phones. The phones right. would be the hardest thing for a kid to be away from. And now are they away from them? I mean, it's, I it seems I like, would, yeah. I would guess that at most camps, they make it a priority to say no phones. But so that, that Surrender the, the phone man. at the bin as you, as you go in. Yeah. I mean, that's... If you look at if you look at classrooms today, I mean, they re, they can't control that stuff. So, I mean, well, then again, you go to summer camp for a more totalitarian experience, don't you, than school? Like right. if school felt constricting, let's go to summer camp where there's even more rules enforced yeah. all the time, and yet we like it more than school. And well, that's kind of strange. And where they control your sleep patterns, and yeah. and in fact, uh, you get less sleep than you should, and so. Mm-hmm you're kind of worn down in such a way as to be made uh, made open to mm-hmm. um, the influence of... Right. There's this sense of multiple classes operating here in, in Fun Camp. We have the counselors, whom we've mentioned, and the student, students, the campers. And as well, there is the permanent staff of whatever venue you're at, which you don't really think about as being separate. As a kid, you think, well, these are grown-ups. That grown-up who's raking the leaves is the same as that grown-up who's uh, leading the youth group sing-along or what have you. There is a piece in there. Is there not about specifically about uh, the permanent yes, staff? Yes, there is, yeah. What does that one say? Why don't we, why don't we take uh, a look at it? Sure. Let's hear it for the perma staff. These guys were here for the Jews of the week before us. They're here for fun camp. And they'll be here next week when we've all gone home to caption camp scrapbooks and the junior achievers show up to swap business cards, practice faking shame over international foibles, and generally treat this ranch like a convention center. So, briefly, Nurse Nurse Nadine here will fix you up like a pro while honoring her belief in the healing power of improvisational storytelling. No examples now, please, Nadine. Save it for the wounded with no place to go. Chefs Grog, Putty, and Marimba will be dishing up all your high-protein fun fuel for the week. Be sure and thank them. Food staff have powers you just hope to God you're nice enough to keep them from using. That said, Grog's a talker, so engage at your own risk. Same goes for old Sammy here. On paper, a groundskeeper, but in practice, a cool drink sipper who perches in the shade, dispensing salty wisdom. This guy's sage as hell and has maybe even been in some wars. Sam? Sam's shaking his head. But... Just know, the permastaffs got their own thing going. They won't be on message like myself, Dave, Bernadette, and your counselors. So when they speak, be respectful and polite, but be prepared to dismiss whatever they advocate as apocryphal. Likewise, they've asked that we not try to convert them this year, even while smiling, even when they could sorely use our message. We'll soon find out if they mean it. Who are the permastaff of life? Now that I think about this metaphor, oh. you know, there's who who are who are the ones you can take a glance at to see through the veil the others are putting up. You know, do you know what I mean? Wow, I gotta think about if, that. If we're going through the whole life and microcosm, someone's got to be the permastaff. I think there's something to that. I just don't have the answer. Is it that, yeah, is it that uh, you're? <laughs> is it that your employer is the counselor and then the perma staff is the government? It's possible. I mean, we the U.S. does seem to be run more by the bureaucracy than the politicians. So I do, I, I do, I do, uh, I do credit mm. that. But who maintains that sense of permanence? Do you think? Yeah. 
Hmm. I mean, if we're talking specifically about the government, we could really say politicians are the counselors. They're the ones trying to gin up enthusiasm, yeah, right? And, you know, the bureaucrats who are there no matter what, party in, party out, administration in, administration out. But that's just political. I mean, I don't know if yeah. we can widen this so anymore. So maybe the DMV is the firm <laughs> staff? Just take a look at the take a look at the faces of a DMV employee, and there you will see there you will see beyond uh, beyond all the uh, not lies necessarily. You know, they're not lies the counselors are telling in this book. It's it's right. what what do you think the counselors are doing to reality? What are they, how are they processing reality for these kids, and why? Well, I can say that one thing that helped me write this was that whenever somebody's giving a speech in here, uh, I I was most excited by writing it and leaving it in if I kind of agreed with it and I kind of didn't. Ah, I see. So I think that the counselors are trying to, they're trying their best to be on message mm. um, in terms of what Funk Camp emphasizes. Right. And so they they do that. But then you have these momentary sides where they're kind of uh, freaking out inside about mm. their ability to be a leader to children and, a, you know, and... Uh, yeah, being kind of being put in this position of authority, but not necessarily always being able to own it. Being on message requires that you always know what the message is, and Fun Camp's message seems a bit, a bit broad, doesn't it? <laughs> always have fun. I mean, play a lot of pranks. Yeah, that's true. It's hard. It's, <laughs> it's hard to nail it down to a given situation. In in Christian camp, I would imagine at least you can, you have some sense of like what the bedrock of the message is like you know the tenets of the religion so you can you can kind of go from there or i mean how how is it in christian camp are there different emphases yeah well i would say that there's still a lot of argument over over that because you know you kind of the the bible is a big and contradictory book and so what uh what christianity is the flavor that you want to emphasize is it like the jesus of service and um, that, you know, you could extend to ecology mm. and, uh, just, you know, kindness and, and feeding the poor and all these things, yeah. or is it going to be the, the more, you know, warped dogmatic, uh, conservative agenda that, um, right. often seems to kind of worm its way into, um, into these discussions, especially with kids to kind of show them. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, cause, cause I can think of, I can think of times when I was around both. Um, oh, yes. and That's so the same camp. Sometimes at the same camp, usually in different places, but sometimes at the same same camp where you know you kind of have your your head meetings that are about this, and then you break out into your groups, and the leader of the group is saying, "Well, I don't, I don't totally agree with that." By the yes. way, it's I actually see. still up for conversation. Ah, okay. So you there even within the 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 nature of being on message is a lot less simple than it seems at first. Then yeah, even, even as as a as the kid as the camper, you're you're getting. The, the the head meeting, as you say, you're getting the individual counselors telling you another thing. And I would imagine that not just that, but as I mentioned, it's it's a polyphonic novel. You're working with many voices, as the word would uh, would imply. And there seems, reading the book, it seems to me there's no other way to really capture the summer camp experience, which I, as I, again, never had. But there's no a single narrative doesn't tell you a lot about what summer camp is or wouldn't, would it? Right. And I think that, I mean, there's, there's a way that I could have written this where I really, you know, write all these people individually, write, write all these people in their, um, in their speeches individually, but, and then try to tie them together with a little bit of narrative. But I mean, for one thing, I think that that would have been the most half-assed part of the book. And it also, I mean, if, even if I was, uh, even if I just presented these monologues, 
as uh, where you always know the name of the person who's talking mm. and got a little bit of stage direction and where they are and kind of place them in that way. Mm. In some ways, it would be easier to read, especially the first time, because you would be you just have an immediate sense of orientation. Yeah. But I think that the flip side of that is that you also would get the sense that those things are important, you know, oh, who's I speaking see. and where they are. Right. And a lot of the time, I mean, when I'm not providing that information, it's because I'm way more interested in honoring a particular kind of camp moment or experience than I am in exploring a character that you need to track because she's appearing again on page 47. And I think mm. you're going to be interested in how she develops. There are some people who develop through in here, mm -hmm. but uh, they're, they're the people who get named and uh, um, reappear again and again. There's then a sense in which you're always talking about camp. You're never primarily talking about an individual. It's the, the subject is always camp itself, no yeah. matter what the piece is. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. It's there's the, the voice of camp, um, is always very present. And so, um, even when somebody is, is off message or somebody is resisting the voice of camp, they're doing so kind of knowing that that exists. And right. so, you know, it's kind of how close to the sphere, uh, are you? It's always relative to the voice of camp. Yes. No one, no one is speaking not relative to camp or in a world where there is no camp or where yeah. camp is not the primary thing. That's right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's interesting. You could say that about a lot of things that <laughs> we just talk about or make the center of culture. Um, like it was so, it was so challenging to read news for a couple of days last week because there was so much uh, Miley Cyrus uh, going on. And so even, even me, even my revulsion to Miley Cyrus articles uh, made me have to think about and react to what was the center of, right. of cultural news that day. And, and, you know, I resented that. Yes. There's, there's a sense in which, we would all like to say that we actively ignore Miley Cyrus news, but is there is there really any way to do that? I mean, because if you're you're if you're ignoring Miley Cyrus news, you're still ignoring Miley Cyrus news, and you're reacting to Miley Cyrus. Like, yeah, is there a way so. you can be neutral to Miley Cyrus? I think you could get offline and go live in the desert on a ranch someplace. Right. But if you did that because of Miley Cyrus, that's, <laughs> I mean, then, then that's, you're, wow. You know. Yeah, that's true. You're yeah. Or maybe you did it because of like, you know, Monica Lewinsky and you're still on the ranch, <laughs> but no matter what that inciting incident is, right. it's something that really mm. distressed you. As I've read, you're working also on a nonfiction manuscript, which requires you to go deep into the news of what, what day is it? September 22nd, 2011. Yeah. So what was Miley Cyrus in the news that day? Uh, it wasn't a big news day for Miley Cyrus um, from the research that I did. Uh, there was a lot... Um, a lot of what was happening in the news on that day was the fallout of the Troy Davis execution because he died. Uh, so Troy Davis, um, now that we're kind of a couple years away from it, um, he was uh, accused of murdering a police officer in, I believe, 1989. And uh, he's been on death row for a long, long time. But there's, uh, there's, there's many reasons to doubt his conviction. Um, and there's a very strong case for a particular... Uh, other guy who was there last night actually being the the, the killer. Um, and a lot of that uh, evidence didn't come up until after the trial and, uh, you know, he was never retried. And so there's a lot of, um, um, so, so there's a lot of think pieces about that. And um, that wound up 
taken up a lot of my headspace too. And I was working on the book, especially since, um, I wound up writing a lot about what can be known. Um, and I'm not, you know, I wasn't trying to make the case that he didn't do it because, uh, I wasn't there and I don't know, but it seems to me that, um, as we move farther and farther into big data and technology and our, our own abilities to research things increases, uh, this gives us a lot of hubris. It gives us a lot of sense that uh, we do know more. Or maybe we've always had that, but that's the age that you and I are living in. So I yeah, see- I could just look up that Samuel Johnson quote just now. I mean, yeah. it's very handy. So on one hand, you looked it up and that was the Samuel Johnson quote. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we really could know that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. But, but then again, I just Google searched and said what was bolded on the first hit. Like I, I wasn't, there wasn't a lot of verification that's there. That's true. That's true. There's some suspect uh, Ben Franklin quotes out there too. That <laughs> yes, um, I mean you can punch in any quote you're certain. You can probably find confirmation of any quote you want, even if it's a real quote or not. Like there's, we have this yeah. information, but I didn't. I wasn't doing a lot to really check my work, right? Yeah, if you'd really been motivated on that Samuel Johnson quote, you could have created a website quoting Samuel Johnson and then cited it. Um, mm-hmm. I could have fabricated a quote myself now that I think of if I If you seed things correctly in the right places, you know, if I can just get what I want onto Wikipedia and yeah. a couple of other high page-ranked sources. <laughs> I, right. Now, before I sidetrack, so you were saying so, about, about information and the, and the so accessibility so and our much, hubris. Yeah, we have so much access to information and that can inform us in so many ways. And I, and I love it. I'm addicted to information and looking things up and just finding things out and kind of having that wash over me. But I don't think that it's necessarily made me wiser. Um, and I do think that sometimes that is the implication. And so we assume that we can know things. And we also, I mean, some of it also, that I think, goes back to the um, just world fallacy, which is just that um, a guy like Troy Davis wouldn't be convicted and then killed by the state of Georgia if he didn't do it. Right. Because or the other line of thinking probably did something he probably did something you know, i mean he was uh i mean he was definitely nearby uh, so okay. that's that is i just mean when people say that guy probably did something bad in life wow. so you know yeah that's, you've, you've heard that yeah, line yeah, of it's reasoning very, yeah it's a very like karmic line of reasoning <laughs> right so you're just sort of assuming that these things work themselves out but we have so many case studies where we know that that's not true and so um anyway so i get to explore that in the book as i uh watch myself moving through the world on a pretty normal day um and then also wind up flinging over to world events that are uh that are going on have a lot of fun with kind of the 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 smallness of myself and yet you know this this pretty rich life that i lead and a lot of it's full of a lot of happiness and then uh just terror everywhere and yeah ecological collapse and right. uh what what is it to live in a um, nation on the decline and um haven't people been thinking that for quite a bit of human history that things are going to hell like it's yeah is it, or do you see a difference more, now i think it's more quantifiable now mm. um i think that there's just some things that we know um about global warming and about uh, our access to fresh water and about oil and some of these things that we just um, can't really get away from overpopulation. And so in some ways, um, 
people have always been right that we've been going to hell because we've been heading this way and we've been populating, populating, populating. And it was, and it wasn't bad at the time. And, uh, or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't getting to the bad levels, but it, it, that is the road that led us to where we are now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we're implicated. Our ancestors are implicated. Uh (laughs) How do we control for the, the knowledge hubris about our prediction, our dire predictions, you know, because those, those will necessarily have some hubris in them as well. Like maybe it's worse than we think. Maybe mm. it's better. I don't, maybe it's not neither worse nor, nor better, but completely different. I mean, yeah. we have, we have more knowledge now, but do we have also more hubris now about that? I think that we could, uh, I mean, I, th- I think when we talk about, uh, individual people have such a different perspective on these things and have such a different approach to, um, what optimism is and what is the way forward, you know, whether it's just, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders and don't think about it. Cause it is really painful to think about. And I try not to too much. I think I kind of err on the side of uh, thinking about some of those things um, more than is even necessarily useful uh, for my life, but maintaining some hope that there are solutions that we haven't arrived at yet um, is a fair part of the equation. Um, I was listening to uh, the writer Lydia Millet on a podcast the other day, and she was kind of talking about some of these big problems. And I liked the way that she phrased it, which is something like, I don't think that I need to be optimistic because optimism um, can sort of, uh, I don't know exactly how she said, she said optimism can, keep us from recognizing the truth. But I do think it's important to have, to maintain a good disposition and to try to, uh, try to live in happiness. Mm. The issue may be something other than optimism and pessimism. I mean, they, I was thinking about this this morning and there's that, that, uh, thing people just say, especially if they consider themselves pessimists, that pessimism is the condition of, viewing things realistically. Hmm. I always think, well, optimism, optimists must also think they're like both optimists and pessimists by definition, think they're realists, right? right? Like that's, there's no such thing as, as somebody who really thinks themselves pessimistic or optimistic, right? I've heard some studies where people have been found to be more accurate uh, about themselves and their abilities when they're depressed. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of a bummer. But I do think uh, it's not unfair to proceed in optimism about yourself and to recognize that you are going to be buoyed by by your optimism and you're going to achieve more if you can just kind of maintain a maybe partially false, but also just um, happy (laughs) sense of self and, you know, trust that things are going to be okay. And if you do fail. It's okay. Mm. Was the day of September 22nd, 2011 chosen sort of bloomsday style, like that it would be ordinary or was there a reason to, to focus on that day for you? It was chosen that it would be ordinary. I mean, I, I wanted to pick a day that was in the middle of the week and I thought it would be interesting to pick one where I was, uh, out teaching a bunch of classes. And I see. so at the time that was Tuesday and Thursday and um, that just kind of seemed like that might be more generative for me, mm-hmm. but uh, it also needed to be, cause when I conceived of the idea and when I was ready to do it, it was right around the 10th anniversary of September 11th. Oh, yes. And I thought, well, 
okay, I guess I'll need to wait a couple weeks just just to maintain a little bit of distance from right. what could easily accidentally consume a book that I'm trying to that right. I'm trying to allow some sense of the ordinary That's and true. yet, you know. That's true. <laughs> or you could do the whole man on wire thing and just never mention the destruction of the towers because um, you could, I don't know what I don't know what September 11th 2011 was like yeah I mean I don't it just know lets what that stand it it does let it stand I mean no one ever brings it up in that movie but I mean I don't know what the 10th anniversary of 911 was like for you but other than seeing some trending twitter topics I mean I I could write an account of my own day without really bringing it up that's you know that's probably true but but the news has so many think pieces and that kind that's of thing true. and so I mean, I think in a way I was sort of beholden to what the news cycle was telling me was important. And, you know, that could have been an interesting book too. But, and, but the fact is some of that still snuck in, you know, a week and a half later. And, uh, so it was probably a little more balanced uh, to not have it. So how much, how detailed a record did you have of your own life that day? At what distance were you looking back on September 22nd, 2011, or was this, was it at the time where you were you recording were you taking notes for this manuscript then yeah i was taking notes okay. i was uh recording into my phone um oh, whenever i could kind of get away from stuff and um just say what had happened little snippets of conversation and um you know and then just on a little document on my computer mm-hmm. and then the next day while it was fresh i took a lot of time to just make as many notes and just think as hard as i could to right. really uh just spend some time in my own day. Well, I could, I I had an advantage that nobody else did because, um, part of the process for me was contacting a number of writers and friends and, um, some of my closest family members and asking them to participate. But I asked them to participate ahead of time. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what day it is because I don't want you to, I didn't want it to be this very self-aware thing where everybody was, uh, monitoring themselves and doing things because they knew that they were going to be reporting on it later. Mm. So I just didn't tell them. And then I, so I was living my day, uh, knowing. And so there's kind of that tension there of, I I mean, I, I obviously would have done things differently, but there's no way I can keep it from myself. Right. Um, unless I did like a randomization at the end, but my recall isn't amazing. And Uh, so I, it wouldn't have been, you know, if it was six days ago, I never would have been able to mm. um, drum up the same kind of detail as I did. So, but at the at, at midnight, at the very end of the day, mm. I sent out a blitz email to everyone who agreed to do it, and uh, just, go. and just said today's the day, and here's wow. and here's a survey, um, and they just wrote back in the in the next week to come, uh, just started pouring in with so much interesting stuff, oh, really? and. Yeah, particularly for me, because these are people who I love mm. and who I know, uh, some of whom I know pretty well, but who I was learning things about just by kind of watching them uh, as they recite their account of what they did and what they thought about. Mm. Um, and so they surprised me a lot. So in a way, um, there was this immediately gratifying time, um, like a, a bender in, the, in, <laughs> in, those, in, in that kind of long weekend ahead that I was just reading up and uh and enjoying that and in early stages of writing the book i think i included a little too much of that stuff because it was interesting to me but you know i don't think for you colin reading about some of my friends who i went to grad school with would have been quite as too many degrees of separation that's right Hmm. that's right so reading this stuff 
writing about your own day, looking at the news, how quickly did the theme emerge of the disconnection, disconnect, whatever you want to call it, between uh, lives on the ground that might be pretty happy and uh, the dire narrative of, of humanity and, and, and the earth and whatnot? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when I'm being really honest, I, I somewhat conceived of that ahead of time. And I felt like that was part of what was welling up inside of me and wanting to participate in the experiment was not just, not just kind of this general, like, I'll, I'll see what happens and make a fun book out of it. But rather that, uh, I just was noticing this tension within myself of, uh, yeah, again, just having a life that I really enjoyed and, uh, a lot of people I really loved in it. And yet, uh, being surrounded by so much, so much pain and, uh, so much to be pessimistic about, uh, for mm-hmm. the future. And so, um, so I, so I saw it had, I had some of those ideas going into it and I knew that I kind of wanted to get global at some times and talk about how long our son would be alive and just kind of throw in some of these things that, uh, I didn't, it didn't need to be September 22nd for me to sure. give you a few statistics about the sun. Sure. Um, but you can always use a few stats about the sun. That's right. Well, the sun's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I can link to the uh, They Might Be Giant song on the subject oh, yeah, of the sun. The sun yeah, the sun, the, the sun is a massive incandescent gas. Yes, a gigantic nuclear furnace. Um, for most people, it seems like this tension that you mentioned between uh, grand events and one's own life, it, it just manifests itself as them saying to themselves, gee, should I be worrying more? Should I be reading the news and worrying more? Uh, screw it. That's yeah, kind of, I mean, did, did, did anybody do anything different than that in these narratives you collected? Like, was anybody like, oh, I, I thought about global warming and then I went and cool, <laughs> cooled down the world? So I don't know. Like, what did, what do you do? Uh, no, people were concerned with things in the news. And I mean, I think particularly uh, there, there were a handful of people who had been following Troy Davis pretty closely and were experiencing some real pain from... Uh, following the story and and being um, probably being against the death penalty in general, and then also uh, being against how that particular campaign was uh, handled, and so um, you know, so you see people. I mean, and and I think that that rings true. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, that myopic perspective of just kind of me going through my world and doing my thing. And honestly, I think that's, uh, that is a happier way to live most of the time. Mm. And I, in my day to day, I don't, uh, I'm not always tough enough to spend as much time with the news, uh, Mm. as sometimes I might like to be. And so I did it with this book and I really got to know the things that were happening around this time. Um, and I spent time with them that I just wouldn't have had to do otherwise mm-hmm. because the world keeps moving on, but I didn't necessarily keep moving with it in every yeah, instance, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. spend as much time, uh, kind of, you didn't go on to the 23rd and some of these, for some of these issues. Oh, well, I did go on to the 23rd. Yeah. Because you really do have to, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least that week. It's a little like how we are now going to camps, summer camps that pertain directly to us. You know, we're not just going to Christian summer camps, but particular Christian summer camps that reflect, and maybe we're going to Christian 
programming, summer camps. You know, there's mm. there's there's that special specialization you see in summer camps, which you also see in news people absorb or their their own experiences. Yeah. We don't have to do a lot that doesn't pertain directly to us anymore, right? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, the way that uh, camps like TV or many of these other things right. are moving away from monoculture. And so, you know, whereas, you know, many years ago, you and I might have gone to different camps and then had extremely similar experiences to talk about afterwards uh, in 2013, that's just would not be the case. Right. I mean, you say the word monoculture, and that's something I know almost, almost always as something someone bemoans like, oh, this monoculture, monoculture, monoculture. But now, now you you put it in this context. I haven't heard somebody say, oh, there's no monoculture anymore. How can we solve our problems? But they are saying that. They just don't use the word monoculture. Like, there's no monoculture to force us to confront our issues yeah, as humanity. That's fascinating. So, yeah, because what you're referring to is is like the fact that, you know, you can get McDonald's wherever you that's, go. People are so, used talking about McDonald's. Yeah, so true. McDonald's is our monoculture, but the Ed Sullivan show is not our monoculture. <laughs> exactly. And I haven't been to a McDonald's in maybe 15 years. Not Not by choice. I'm not, you know, anti-McDonald's, but it's just like... There's, this is Los Angeles. You know, there's lots of places to eat, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although, and I can go to one that pertains directly to me. I've been more recently than you have, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that, how is it now? Uh, fries are still good. Mm. Yeah. Mm, that, that Mick Cafe concept has taken off. Uh, is that the healthier stuff? I don't. I don't know. I've heard. I've seen it. Re- I've heard there was a rebranding coming, but it's. Uh, I take yes, it even yeah. McDonald's itself is not as monocultural as once it was. I would, I would imagine. Wow, that's true. Yeah, I don't get down with that stuff. Um, Comedian Nick Crawl has a good bit about uh, how like McDonald's uh, their their branding makes him sad now because that he sees them striving to be something that they're just not. Yes. You know where they say, "So, um, do you want a wrap?" <laughs> and he goes, "No, no, no, McDonald's. That's not what I go to you for." Yes, exactly. You know, you're my you're my midnight booty call. Oh, you're wow. not. You're, they are specialized in that way, and right. they ignore that at their peril. That's right. Mm. One of the reasons I didn't go to summer camp, and I would say was kind of afraid to go, didn't want to as a kid, was that I would be, I didn't want to be separated not from television but from video games. Which yeah. for guys our age in, in America, you know, that it was it was important that we not be separated too long from our video games. I was actually afraid. I had a, this persistent fear for years as a kid that like if I left the house for a while. The house would burn down, and my Genesis would go with it. Like, and I was like, "That's not replaceable." You need to stay at home to guard your Genesis. <laughs> yes, or my my Game Boy, I could take with me. So yeah. even if I wasn't going to play it, I often had it with me just because if the house burns down, I will have a Game Boy. Wow! But the Genesis, I mean, it's I'm not going to carry that, you know. Um, but you, usually. you, you, yeah, usually, I I did get the Genesis Nomad later though, which took actual Genesis cartridges oh, that handheld. Yeah, not many people had that. No. You were <laughs> it was, you were pretty hardcore. I, I had to search for it, but a little big is a, the problem. Very yeah. bulky handheld. Yeah. But you you are publishing a series of books on video games. I mean, is this one of those things that generationally we can't ignore the importance of video games, especially individual ones in, in our sort of own narratives. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I've tried to at times, honestly, because um, I I really perceive video games role in my life often as this uh, addiction that is just so fun. Um, but when I get going, I really can have a hard time stopping and so when I'm trying to be an ambitious person and, you know, write books and that kind of thing, it really, well, when I go on a bender, it really steals uh, some time away. And so, you know, there have been patches of adulthood where 
I just, you know, I kind of, you know, I'd, I'd say no more. Um, but it always, it always comes back. And I think, you know, I'm starting to get more comfortable with that, honestly. I mean, particularly now that obviously I'm doing a publishing project that's right. based around them. But I also just think, you know what? I mean, it, it's, it's not all of who I am, but it's a part of who I am. It's a huge part of my childhood. Mm -hmm. I was, I was playing a lot of them. It must have, you know, wormed into how I see the world and, you know, and, and it's not something to just turn and run away from. No, um, and if and the fact is, I mean, it was, it was a really fun time. Um, yeah. It's something that we look at the importance of it, like you've said, but we haven't really figured out how to write about it. Or talk about it. You know, it's just yeah. this thing that was at the core of many of our lives, but yeah. it just was something we did and we don't, we can't contextualize it. It seems like maybe this isn't something worth writing about or unreal in yeah, some way. The cultural yeah. conversation about video games has been really stunted for a long time because mm. I think within the game community, uh, most of the time, I mean, particularly pre internet, you know, I was a big Nintendo Power kid and that kind of thing. And, um, but those were commercials, you know, Nintendo Power was put out by Nintendo yes. and they did a fabulous job of making their new games look unbelievable. And so that was that was what games writing was, was uh, commercials and, you know, they, they're with a little bit of uh, consumer awareness uh, thrown in there. So if they if, if one really sucked, they would let you know about it. Right. If it was mediocre, they would say, oh, pretty good. But right. well, you had um, your EGMs and to a lesser extent, your game pros. And yeah, whatnot, and right? it, yeah, it definitely got uh, once you got more options, I think that sort of helped the market. But still, it was very um, even even when they were being honest, it was very consumer driven. And then on the flip side of it, um, the conversation was dominated by people who just wanted to ask, you know, are, are these games making us violent? Um Right. And that that discussion persists largely actually because of the NRA. It turns out that the reason that we talk uh, about video games, I think, is mostly because um, the NRA needs uh, Patsy to put on um, oh, this. Yeah. And, and so every time um, they were very happy when Mortal Kombat yeah, hit home consoles. Yeah. So every time something like mm, blood um, code, we have a national tragedy like Sandy Hook or some of these, um, they're the ones bringing it up and saying, look, you know, you can talk all you want about guns, but we know that the real problem is with culture. I mean, just look at these games that kids are playing, you know, and just cut to, you know, whatever the, the really bloody right. um, game of the month is when, you know, uh, that's no, it's, it's, it's the guns. It's definitely the guns. Right. Um, you know, it might, and you can do more with a gun than with the, with your mortal combat cartridge or whatever yeah, you have. That's it. right. So um, but there's... You can't actually punch somebody's spine out like that, like they do in Mortal <laughs> Kombat, you know? That's... Well, you can't. That's true. I can't do it. Um, the... So I, there's so much to talk about. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who have been writing really exciting things, but mostly on the internet. Um, there's, you know, this kind of wave of what they were calling new games journalism, which is largely autobiographical games writing mm -hmm. and kind of just contending with a lot of the time just that part of your childhood that you gave over to games and you know what did you what did you get from it what did it help you with what were you what were you running from or you know what weren't you running from and what did it you know kind of how, how did it help enrich the rest of your life and so uh, you have a lot of people writing online about these things and then um, you know just so many interesting things to talk about with mechanics I think with with games um, games like movies uh, just have so many facets to them because you can talk about gameplay you can talk about music you can talk about story you can talk about 
the, the, the graphics and the, and, um, characters and so many things. And so, and then also on top of that, um, the it's, it's playable. And so, uh, you can talk about Ludo narrative and what, you know, what happens, uh, how, how can you resist or need to go along with the story as it's being presented to you? Um, you know, particularly with some of these sandbox games and yes. you know, one of these, some of these, uh, stories that, that they tell or, or let you contribute to. And so, um, in a way, I think it's easier to write a book about a video game probably than it would be to write a book for the 33 and a third series, which was, right. you know, really inspirational for us because I think those books are, are really cool. And mm. some of them, uh, particularly the Celine Dion book and the, uh, Pavement Wowie Zowie book are both just phenomenal yeah. works of nonfiction. And so, and yet there's, there's only so much you could do in a book about music because it's just uh, music. Music is, is just music. It's just one thing. Right. I was going to say something about how video games have already surpassed me. Like that. I talk mm. about how echoing things. I remember adults saying when I was a kid, like, Oh, I don't understand these games anymore. It's too many yeah. buttons. I can't play them. But then I realized, well, that's some games. That's like maybe the latest iteration of the Xbox and the latest Call of Duty, like I would have a hard time playing because there are too many buttons and too many things going on. Yeah. I could learn it, but at the same time, I mean, it's like the summer camp thing. Yeah. There are new games for, and I'll just tap my iPhone here. New games for the iPhone that play exactly like the ones we grew up with, but they're sort you know newified somehow. Like yes. there's, there is now every type of game being made. Do you that's think that's right. true? Yeah, I do think that's true, and that's the that's the monoculture conversation once again is that. Right. Um, when we talk about gamers, um, usually for whatever reason, gamers, uh, are the people playing the AAA games that are, you know, first person shooters and that kind of thing. And so, um, that, that is often the first thing that you think of, but in fact, um, most everybody is a gamer in some sense. Right. And so angry birds alone, I think that turns five billion people into games That's right and and you should i mean you, you should count it people have opinions about angry birds but it's um you know it's a kind of fun little game and uh it's yeah there's there's so there's so many venues to play on now and there's a lot of conversation about what is you know what are the real games and what are the um the unimportant games you know are the real games the games that uh have a staff of 300 people working on it um to make it as as immense um and as cool looking as possible or are the real games uh the indie developed uh very personal games where they work hard to create emotional resonance but the gameplay itself is almost secondary to them trying to uh express themselves in a really personal way um you know i'd say i'd say yes to to all those and that's kind of one of the things i want to explore with this series and it's part of why I want these books to be really different from each other is that one, you know, I'm inviting very different people. Um, you know, Ken, Ken Bauman is coming from such a different place than Anna Anthropy who's writing our ZZT book. Um, cause she's a game developer. And so that's, that's her job. And so is, uh, Darius Kazemi. And then, uh, John Irwin, um, who's, uh, you know, he, he, he came out of a, creative writing, um, nonfiction program, but he's a games journalist. You know, he's a staff writer for, uh, Kill Screen, which is a really phenomenal uh, games games and culture magazine. It's kind of I'd, I'd say it's it's a lot like the Believer, but for video ah. games. Um, so, the uh, reference listeners will certainly know here to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It seemed it seemed easier when we just had to pick 
Super NES or Genesis, right? But I don't, I don't know if I missed that ease. Yeah, that's true. And it turned out that the whole time that, you know, you and I were uh, battling with people on, on whatever side we were on, I was kind of in both in that one. Yeah. But we, we were console kids. Were you one of the kids who owned both of them? Uh, I eventually got a Super NES because there were like a few games that I was just so excited to play that I just had to get one. I think it was when the Donkey Kong Country games were coming out. It was late in the game. It was late in the game. Yeah, the price had come down some too, which definitely affected it. But yeah, the Sega Genesis was the one that I paid for with my own money and was just kind of like shaking when I got (laughs) home. And so, you know, spending spending the weekend with Sonic and I think Sonic 2 was already out. So just playing both of those like back and forth. Both the Sonics. Ah. I remember, I think mine just had Altered Beast. Oh, wow. So you, you're an early adopter. <laughs> it was, the Super happens. NES wasn't out. Really? Yeah. 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 But no regrets. I, I, I then the proceeded. Game, yeah, we see, yeah. I, I proceeded to, and this says something about humanity right here, even though the Super NES wasn't available, I proceeded to be super partisan about it for the next like yeah. five years, as if I had chosen over, as if I'd chosen with my free will, not the Super NES, even though the Genesis was the only one. It's such a great like parable about like consumers and branding because they're so. Did you use the words blast processing when um, you were defending? I heard no. I I didn't stoop to that level because <laughs> in some sense you knew the Super NES was newer and it was going to be more advanced. But the Genesis, it's like well. It always had the aura of being a bit cooler, yeah. so you could trade on that. Yeah, none of the Super Nintendo games were as fast as Sonic was, <laughs> so true. you could you could kind of go with that. The but, screen goes but really they, fast, guys. But they had a better color palette. So. It's true. I mean, it, in life, you're choosing between the screen going fast and you're choosing between a color palette. I, I don't know. Yeah. What's, it's a, what's the analogy here? I don't know. I mean, speaking of Mortal Kombat, like, that was an interesting one to watch on that line because if you recall, as a Genesis kid, you didn't have any blood in your game. They were just sweating. The Genesis had the blood code. Oh, it had yeah, blood. the Genesis okay. had so it. The Super had NES that. had had nothing initially. Super so NES had a toggle. Yeah, you could, uh, you, you could, yeah, you just turn on the blood. I that's Did that happen. I, I feel uh, like that's that, how I remember it. I'm yeah, making me second guess. I feel like it now. could have been more censored, but it, I mean, now we're in an era without all that. Yeah, not the Nintendo censored. of America was it. very much uh, their position was that um, Nintendo's for children, and oh, these right. these games need to be nice. Mm. Um, so that that really nowadays they have a lot of competition nobody can afford that yeah they can't afford to be that anymore (laughs) Mm. i've been speaking here at larb headquarters headquarters of the los angeles review of books for those of you who still need that spelled out uh with gabe durham author of fun camp and the, the author of the manuscript we've been talking about which is called is it still called meanwhile still calling it meanwhile yeah still calling it meanwhile and also the publisher and editor of Boss Fight Books, the series of books on video games. Am I missing anything, Gabe? That was pretty good. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Colin. Great to be here. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. If you'd like to find more from me, colinmarshall.org. You can find more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.